Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode of this podcast, I look at the works of great American writers, looking at about 100 pages per episode, and I use the Library of America as my main source material. And currently, we are in a series looking at the Leatherstocking Tales. These are the novels by James Fenimore Cooper that explore the life from young adulthood to his death of the of the great frontiersman this archetypal figure in the american frontier history natty bumpo or leather stocking or the deer slayer or hawkeye he has different names in pretty much every novel of the five and we've already looked at the deer slayer which was published in 1841 and is really kind of a prequel to the leather stocking tales published it's the last published of the five novels, but it's set earliest in his life, and we learn a lot about him. We find out how he got the name Hawkeye. We find out how he got his his rifle Killdeer, um, and we find out how he made his first kills and his first conflict with with the Huron Indians uh, during his quote unquote first war path. That novel was set during King George's War, which was the War of Austrian Secession as fought in the New World. The second novel, The Leather Stocking Tales, both in terms of publication and where they're set in the life of our hero, is The Last of the Mohicans. The Last of the Mohicans was, was published in 1826, and it deals with, it's basically set, around, you know, somewhere around 14, 15 years after the events of the Deerslayer. That, it's not quite clear to me where the, when the Deerslayer took place. I think even Cooper wasn't quite clear. He said it's the events, which are only only three or four days, are set between eight or 1740 and 1745 or something. So it's set during that war, but it's not quite clear the exact date. And this last this book though has a clear date. It's set in 1757, three years into the Seven Years' War, which in the in the Americas was known as the French and Indian War. So that war was fought 1754 to 1763. Like the War of Austrian Secession, it really begins in Central Europe, and it's a conflict between Austria and Prussia that ex kind of explodes into a European-wide war and then becomes part of this, this great colonial conflict between France, France and Great Britain. Now the war, kind of the alliances are very similar to those we saw in King George's War. Great Britain had on its side the American colonies. It also was allied with the Iroquois Confederacy. On France, France, uh, much less populated uh, of a colony, um, but they had a few more Indian tribes on their side, the Lenape, the Ojibwe, the Ottawa, the Shawnee, and, and the Huron people. Now, as in, as in Deerslayer, it's sometimes a little bit confusing for readers because the Huron are referred to often as Iroquois. 
And as, as in both of these wars, the Iroquois were allied with Britain, that might be a little bit confusing. The reason this comes up is because the Huron are essentially an Iroquois-speaking people. And they're part of kind of um, kind of the Iroquoian culture, um, even if they weren't politically part of the Iroquois Confederacy, the five, five and then later on six tribes of the Iroquois Confederacy. This novel, The Last of Mohicans, is much grander than The Deerslayer. The Deerslayer is a very tight, very focused story, although it is set during this war and there are garrisons and there's there's kind of a battle at the end. It's all very small and tight. It, it's really about the Deerslayer and Shingachkuk, his Indian comrade, both raised by the Delawares. And you have a few side characters, especially the Hutter family, are part of that. But it's, it's And it's their experience being besieged by this community of Hurons who are trying to get scalps. And there's a, this, this creates a space for Cooper to do a lot of moral, philosophical conversations and really explore kind of dualisms in, in frontier life. The dualism between different characters, the dualism between Indians and whites, uh, the dualism between kind of the civilization and the frontier. And I talk about this. I did five episodes on, on the Deerslayer, so you can go back and listen to all those. So I'm not going to retread all I said about that. But I just want to compare the two and say that Last of the Mohicans is, you have less of that. You have, and I don't know if it's because it was written earlier and this wasn't on Cooper's mind, or he's just trying to write a straight-up adventure tale. But a lot of that... I guess, lecturing and, and philosophical background. It's not as clear in this novel, which does present itself as a more of a straightforward uh, adventure tale. There are interesting themes to talk about, don't get me wrong. However, it's perhaps not as not as preachy to the reader. And this is one of the reasons I think it's, it's the most popular of the Leatherstocking tales. Of course, it's been made into a, a pretty good movie back in the 90s with Daniel Day-Lewis playing Hawkeye. Um, which I haven't seen in years, so I, I, I'll, I'll probably have to revisit it before I finish the series on The Last of the Mohicans. And I might give some comments about that that version. But it is one of the more popular ones, and it's it's a high-impact novel, so it's something that tends to get you know read in by, by younger readers and sometimes assigned in classes. So it's pe- people are more often exposed to Last of the Mohicans of all the leather-stocking tales. But it's it's a very different type of, of novel, and but it one, what it has that the dear Sarah lacks is this very broad canvas of this war. So we we meet characters like Montcalm. Montcalm is the major French general uh, during the French and Indian War, and I think he dies during the war. And at some point, we'll we'll look at Francis Parkman, who wrote the great history of the conflict between Britain and France and the New Worlds, and he has a whole book, essentially a whole part of that big history, I think it's seven volumes, about Montcalm and uh, the Seven Years' War. So these people become characters in the novel, and we're dealing with a much more high-stake politics, and for long periods of this novel, in fact, Hawkeye and Chingachgook and Uncas, the titular Last of the Mohicans, are not even really in the story, or they're in the backdrop of it, or they're captured. So it's it's kind of a very different novel. It's it's less intimate, um, more of a straight-up adventure story. Um, so that's that's basically my my introduction to Last of the Mohicans. I'm going to spend around four episodes on it. It's about 400 pages long. Um, you know, I think 
probably eight or nine chapters in e each episode. So this first episode, I'll look at the first nine chapters of The Last of the Mohicans. The chapters are much shorter than those in The Deerslayer, a little bit less content. And there's just a little bit so faster and, you know, it's a speedier novel in, in every ways compared to uh, The Deerslayer. We start out uh, with an introduction where he talks about the various Indian communities and the origin of the Indians. And he talks about their Asiatic roots. And he talks about the different groups involved in, in this part of the world, which is basically upstate New York. Um, and it, it's a nice backdrop. And he even talks about the place where this novel is set, which is Lake George. Um, and he talks about the name Lake George and why he didn't like it. He actually uses a different name in much of the novel. But it is set essentially on Lake George in the same way that Deerslayer is set at Glimmerglass, which is Lake Ostigo, Ostigo, I think. Um, real places, real geography, and these. I think even these forts are are real places that were, you know, active in the war. And and there's a battle in described in the novel, which is a real battle that took place in in the war, as, as I understand it. So, anyways, um, that's just the introduction. But chapter one is this broad historical setting. We get a description of the war, the relationship between the colonies and Great Britain, the relationship between France and Britain, the conflict, and the the whole environment, the dangers of the wilderness. And we actually have a kind of an ecological narrative. Something I talked about at some point when I looked at the Deerslayer is that I noticed that environmental historians have an interest in Cooper. And I even remember an anthology of environmental kind of writing uh, that I had I taught in a class once and one of the passages that these editors anthologized in there was a scene from the pioneers in which they're shooting all these birds and I was trying to make a comment about you know using this fictional evidence to show the human impact of on on nature and the frontier and it's something that Cooper seems to be aware of even in this novel which doesn't isn't as it's not a full-blown ecological novel by any sense, but we have this idea of violence corrupting nature and the war itself being a violence against against the frontier almost. So here's the quote. This is right on the first page of it. Quote, the hardy colonist and the trained European who fought at his side frequently extended months in struggling against the rapids of the streams or in affecting the rugged passage of the mountains in quest of an opportunity to exhibit their courage in a more martial conflict. But emulating the patience and self-denial of the practice native warriors, they learned to overcome every difficulty. And it would seem that in time there is no redress of the woods so dark, nor any secret place so lovely, that it might claim exemption from the inroads of those who have pledged their blood to satiate their vengeance or to uphold the cold and selfish policy of the distant monarchs of Europe. So they, they become more Indian-like is what he's saying through their experience on the frontier, but in doing so, they gain access to this frontier and open it up to to exploitation. Um, other things we learn here, we, we learn about the setting, and it's, of course, it's named after King George. I think it was King George II, like George was named after. Uh, we get Cooper lectures a little bit on the historical context, especially the stupidity and the failures of Great Britain in the early years of the war, the weakness of the empire, the challenges facing or the, uh, the the growing differences between the colonies and in Great Britain. And, you know, if, if you ever take like a U.S. history class, you've probably heard a little bit about this, how the Seven Years' War in America started to 
create gaps between the colonies in Great Britain. They started to see, become more aware of the cultural differences. They started being more aware of the political differences, like the British army was very aristocratic and the militias in the colonies were more democratic. Uh, just their, their cultural differences, their, their kind of political culture, and even some of their values and things uh, were, were quite different. Um, but mostly in this first chapter, we're handed this broad overview of the setting and the environment of the novel. So we're in Lake George in the Seven Years' War. The English are being soundly defeated by this great general Montcalm. In fact, the entire leadership is described as faltering. And we're, we're told by Cooper that the British Empire is quite weak out here in the frontier regions. The empire is also experiencing a growing conflict between the colonials and the British. One major our major plot is also summarized in the very first chapter here. And it's essentially Fort Henry is under threat by this powerful general, French General Montcalm. General Webb, who is, command, is commanding troops outside near near the area and he's ordered to send troops to help support the fort which is under the command of a man named Monroe. So our major characters are connected to this guy Monroe. Uh, in fact we have these two women Alice and Cora who are the daughters of of Monroe and we have other uh, another character who's mentioned I think he's mentioned in this opening chapter and his name is Duncan Mayward. He's a young officer and these two women are the ones who are going to be, have to be escorted to Fort Henry through the dangers of the French armies and their Indian allies uh, in, the, in the countryside. And so that's the main plot we're presented in the opening chapter. Now, these two women we have are, are quite different. They're, they're, they look quite different. They're quite distinct. And we learn more about their background as the novel goes on. Uh, but here's the description of them. One, and she was the most juvenile in her appearance, though both were young, permitted glimpses of her dazzling complexion, fair golden hair, and bright blue eyes to be caught as she artlessly suffered the morning air to blow aside the green veil, which descended low from her beaver. The flush which still lingered above the pines of the western sky was not more bright nor delicate than the blooms on her cheek, nor was the opening day more cheering than her animated smile which she bestowed on the youth as she assigned her saddle into her saddle. The other, who appeared to, appeared to share equally in the attentions of the young officer, concealed her charms from the gaze of the soldiery with a care that seemed better fitted to the experience of four or five additional years. It could be seen, though, how, or however, that her person, though molded with the same exquisite proportions, of which none of the graces were lost by the traveling dress she wore, was rather fuller and more mature than her companion. End quote. So we have sort of the the more naive blonde and the more worldly and experienced older brunette in you know, presented here. Now I'll just, we, this is revealed later on in the story, but I'll just come out and say it because it's an important point. And it's, it's one of the more interesting aspects of this novel is the parentage of these, these two young women. The dark haired woman is named Cora and she's the product. Uh, she's the older one. And, Monroe met in the West Indies this biracial woman. It, it's not clear how, if she's, uh, if if she had one black parent or maybe a black grandparent, but at least she's the to use the term that was used at the time, a mulatto. Now, 
at some point she dies. So she dies after like a year, this, this wife. And then the Colonel marries someone else and gives, and that woman gives birth to Alice. So Alice is Cora's younger half sister. Um, and her mother is, is, is Alice Graham. So it takes the same name as her mother. So the other main character we meet here is of course, Duncan Hayward, who's this kind of a Virginian colonial British officer. And he's going to, he's going to be a love interest for, for Alice in in the course of the novel. And Cora is going to have a love interest too, in the character of Uncas, the young Indian. And so there's some kind of racial politics here in that the British officer goes for the white, the pure white character. And the Indian is with this multiracial person. So they, they don't have kids, obviously, because uh, Uncas dies in the novel. It's, it's in the title, right? The Last of the Mohicans. But if they would, they, it would have been one of these triracial um, people of triracial heritage, which are, of course, form part of this kind of Appalachian uh, region of America. There's there's all these stories and anthropologists in the early 20th century were very interested in these groups of so-called triracial isolates. So we have this hinting of, of this triracial um, heritage or the potential for it in these characters. Um, but I'll, I'll probably come back and say more about this when, when we learn more about these characters and this relationship that seems to begin to develop between Uncas and, and Cora. Um, Anyway, so that, that's enough about chapter one. It's, it's mostly just background. Um, chapter two, so we, we kind of zero in on our main quest and our settings. So what's happening is Hayward, Alice, and Cora are trying to get to Fort Henry. They want to be reunited with their father and, and have the safety of being in the fort. And they don't really know how to get there. So they hire or they're going with this Indian guy named Makwa. Makwa, who is a, a Huron. He's, or the pejorative term given in this novel as in the Deerslayer is Mingo. Along the way, they at least Hayward starts to doubt Makwa. Now, he's not quite sure. He just thinks there's something suspicious about this character, especially as they start. he starts to get them lost. And so that's, that's kind of a red flag. These Indians in this region shouldn't be getting lost, especially if they're a guide, right? That's their, kind of their job. Now, on the way, they run into this man, David Gamut. Now, David Gamut's kind of a fun character in this novel. I, I rather like him. Um, he's a frontier psalmist, so he teaches singing of religious music. He write, seems to write this. He has this encyclopedic knowledge of religious texts, and he can sing. He's also a very moral character, as we learn quite early in this novel, and I'll, I'll get to that um, before this episode ends, at least in his attitude towards an animals. Now, there's not, as in a lot of these chapters, there's not that much to say. They're pretty actually straightforward, especially compared to the Deerslayer, where there's just a little bit, there's just a thicker and richer novel than Last of the Mohicans. But not much happens here. But what we do get is a kind of our cast of characters being fully introduced in these early chapters. So we, we got Alice, Cora, David, and Duncan. So those are the four characters. And then we have Makwa, who's our villain of our story who's also really well-developed compared to the villains we had in the Deerslayer. Makwa is really amazingly well-developed and um, there's a lot of fun things to, to say about this character. Um, you know, I haven't read the other Leatherstocking Tales yet, so I don't quite know if 
Makwa's matched, but Makwa is so far uh, into this, the, one of the stronger and more well-realized characters, and he's, he's sort of the bad guy. There's a, I think in the next episode, we'll talk about this dramatic scene where he gives his life, life story. Um, so chapter three, we, we kind of flip to another setting. We, we, we basically meet Hawkeye, the deer slayer, but now he's taken on the name he got in that novel, um, Hawkeye. He's got his rifle kill deer, and he's talking with his companion, Chingachgook, in the forest. Most of this chapter is a series of conversations between these two men. They talk about like the science of the tides, and we have some kind of hints of what we're going to get in the deer slayer where there's a lot of contrast between the way the indians look at the world and the way white people look at the world and you know deer slayer is you know he's raised by the delaware but he sees himself as very white and this is a major theme in the deer slayer is this whiteness he embraces but he's still been raised by the delaware but he still sees the world differently than the other indians and he's very proud of that and he insists on his seeing the world through white man's eyes and we get a little bit of this here where he insists on the science of the tides and, and Chingachgook doesn't quite buy it. We have this nice setting, though, for this good buddy story as these two men clearly have a history and inspire each other. All right now, if we think about how these novels were written, we have the, the pioneers first. And in the pioneers, you have Chingachgook dies. He's only presented, talked about as like Indian, the, the Indian Tom or something in that novel. I, I forget. I haven't read it yet. And of course, at the end of that novel, you know, even if you didn't read it, most people uh, have some memory or knowledge of this, or if you're at all connected to literature, you know, this famous scene of of Leatherstocking going away to the West, right, to flee civilization as it's advancing, right. This is a theme throughout the Leatherstocking tales: is this uh, encroaching of civilization. So this is the second novel written, and he goes back, you know, whatever thirty years to this time where they're good friends. Um, and he's kind of filling in the story of this of this Indian character. And I think I would wish I knew more about what was in Cooper's mind as he developed these stories. And when did he figure out things about them? You know, I think a lot of the stuff in the Deerslayer, for instance, how he got the name Hawkeye or how, how he got killed deer. If he ha did Cooper have this in mind as early as these stories or what? I don't know. But anyways, they, they have a history. And it's, and they clearly inspire each other. Now, Chingachgook is able to talk seriously with Hawkeye about his family and his, especially his son, Uncas. And Uncas is going to be the last of the tribe. And it's something that Chingachgook is aware of and talks honestly with his companion about. Now, we get this whole history of, of the Indians through Chingachgook's conversation with, with Hawkeye. Says, my tribe is the grandfather of nations, but I am an unmixed man. The blood of chiefs is in my veins, where it must stay forever. The Dutch landed and gave my people the fire water, alcohol. They drank until the heavens and earth seemed to meet, and they foolishly thought that they had found the great spirit. Then they parted with their land. Foot by foot, they were driven back from the shores until I, th uh, that I am a chief and a sagamore. I have never seen the sun shine but through the trees. I've never visited the graves of my fathers. Graves bring solemn feelings over my mind. Oh, this is dear. Uh, this is not dear. Sorry, Hawkeye. He 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 kind of builds off this, and now Uncas arrives, and when he when he as he's arriving, Chingachgook declares that Uncas 
is following in my footsteps, but there won't be any more blood in the Sagamores for my boy is the last of the Mohicans. So it's quite sad. I mean, it, it, it's not only the Mohicans who are disappearing in the story. It's, it's other Indian groups. The Huron are another sort of doomed group. Now, something that is talked about in the Deerslayer is talked about here too, which is, is this idea of racial gifts, this idea that, that different races have different kind of innate abilities or talents and what, what Hawkeye calls gifts. He says, I am not a prejudiced man, nor one who vaunts himself on his natural privileges. Those worst enemy I have on earth, he is an Iroquois. Daren't deny that I'm a genuine white. And I'm willing to, my, to own that my people have many ways of which, as an honest man, I can't approve. It is their customs to write in books what they have done and seen instead of telling them in their villages. And he goes on like this way. This is on page 502 if you have the Library of America version of this. But this is all back to this idea of, of natural gifts. He says, you know, I have a natural turn with the rifle. And he seems to connect that to his racial legacy and his hereditary heredity. Um, so th this is something that's consistent throughout Cooper's writing uh, from the time he writes Last of the Mohicans to the time he comes to the Deerslayer. So it's important to keep in mind. Um, and th that's a chapter. So as the chapter ends, th this party of travelers runs into them. So in chapter four, having met all our major characters, um, these are the ones we really need to know. Of course, there's going to be Monroe and Montcalm, but our, the major characters in the story are all presented this early in the story already. So Hawkeye and Chingachgook meet up with Uncas, and they, they find this arriving band of travelers. Now, despite having an Indian guide, they are lost. Now, this is a red flag for both Hayward and Hawkeye. An Indian simply shouldn't be lost in these territories, especially an Indian guide. Now, twice in this chapter, Hawkeye warns Hayward about Magua, saying the same line. He says, a mingo is a mingo. And basically saying they can't be trusted, right? They're, they're untrustworthy by nature. And this goes back to this idea of kind of racial gifts or traits that are kind of just part of your, your being. Now, Hayward, finally, there's a bit of skepticism between the two, and there's a bit of banter and, and, and all that. But Hayward finally admits that he is not fully trusting the guide. Now, they don't have much choice in the matter, though. They can either go back to, I think it's Fort Edward, where they came from, or, you know, they could maybe shoot Magua in the leg to avoid any treachery he's planning, but, you know, this their goal is still to get to this other fort. Eventually, they approach and confront Magua, who admits that he has this, this name, Renard Subtil, which Renard referring to Fox, so... It's kind of got a tricksy name. Uh, again, we have this idea of the of the Huron being not trustworthy, something which Hawkeye dwelled on a lot in this novel, or dwells on in this novel, and Deerslayer dwells on it a lot in that novel. So uh, Renard, or let's just call him Magua, he flees. He says he gets his name from the Canadians, but he flees the scene after being exposed as having some kind of trick, and Hawkeye shoots at him in the woods. And then we jump to the next chapter. Um, there are a lot of cliffhanger sort of chapters in this, in this novel. So they really can't pursue Makwa because they fear he has allies nearby. And in fact, he does. So the whole thing of getting them lost, it seems, was just a 
get them close to his allies so they could be ambushed or whatever. But then Hawkeye and Chingachgook and Uncas interfere and kind of throw a wrench into that plan. But although Makwa is wounded, he can still be very dangerous in the woods. So they decide not to pursue him. Instead, they decide to hide out in a place that Hawkeye and Chingachgook know about. Um, but they need to somehow make it look like they went off on horses to distract them. They can't, and they have one of the horses, the colt. I think it's David's colt, this psalmist. It's noisy, so they can't really take him along with them, so he has to be killed. And Hawkeye is presented as very decisive here at this moment, and Uncas also is very decisive in following the orders of, of Hawkeye to kill this, this horse. And here's where we start to see kind of the sim- deep sympathy David has for living things and for animals. And he sings this eulogy. Now, you might want to see David as a very weak character. And, and there's a conversation that kind of gets to this. You know, what's the use of being a musician in this frontier area during a war? But I think Cooper does have some sympathy for this character. And he's not just comic relief. He does kind of have some heart and soul to him. And I, I rather like this character. Um, and he's, he's not just there to be the goofball, the odd guy, the guy who's not fit to be in, in the frontier. And we see this kind of uh, sympathy when he sings this eulogy for the cult. And they enter the secret place, which is kind of an island between some waterfalls. They're, basically, they're in Glens Falls. Now, I don't know if it's literally Glens Falls, if they're quite um, in the right place. I used to live in upstate New York in Albany. So I don't, I don't know if this is exactly the same place, but that's certainly clearly the inspiration. And it's called, actually, like, Glenn's, you know, something about Glenn's here. So, um, you know, if Cooper is kind of fictionalizing this real place, he's not trying too hard to, to, to fictionalize it. Um, so chapter six, it's a bit of a down chapter in the action, but there's some character issues that we need to talk about. Uh, we return to these, this idea of, of kind of character and, and nature here a little bit. Um, let's see. I can't find the quite passage in my mind when I jotted down this note. Um, oh, here it is. As bright examples of great qualities are but too uncommon among Christians, so they are singular and solitary with Indians. Though for this honor of the common nature, neither are capable of producing them. Let us hope that this Mohican may not disappoint our wishes, but prove what he what his looks has sent him to be a brave and constant friend so there's this idea of 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 kind of a nature and a character that comes out through their racial background or their cultural background hayward has doubts about the safety of their location in fact he he should be but much of the chapter is focused on the career of david gamut who's who's not fully respected by hawkeye but not because he thinks he's useless but i, I think hawkeye doesn't fully understand really what he does or the value of what he does. And it's, it's an interesting conversation where he tries to explain to Hawkeye what what his job is, you know, training people to speak. And he's got this important role in this frontier religion. We, we get the hint in this chapter as well that Uncas is falling in love with Korra. So that's foreshadowed here. But mostly it's, it's a down chapter about that, that kind of lets us spend a little bit of time with these characters. 
In chapter seven, we become witness to some of the crazy skills of Hawkeye. We already know he's a dead shot, um, but they go out of Glen's Falls or this waterfall hiding place. And there's a scene early in this chapter where we just learn how attentive he is and how good his ears are and how he understands things that other people don't hear. Like wolves are attracted to horses, the horses, so they hear the wolves, but then the wolves stop howling. And this he immediately knows means there are Indians nearby because the wolves would not lay off their hunt of the horses unless they were humans nearby because wolves are generally afraid of humans. So he suggests that the party hides, but they're soon under attack. And that, that's basically what happens in chapter seven. In chapter eight, we have a dot, you know, that the, the attack is documented and, and, and described. Hawkeye gives uh, is teaching Uncas during the battle which is a nice little moment we have of, of kind of passing on now to the next generation. Now, during this battle, the white men are wounded. David, well, Hawkeye's not, but the other white men. David's wounded as is Hayward. And the women are, are fine, and Chingachgook, Uncas, and Deerce, uh, the Hawkeye are fine. But the battle becomes desperate, and with those men down, it's not clear that they can hold it off. So Cora comes up with the idea of the Indians and Hawkeye escaping through the water and then coming back to effect a rescue in the future. And so Cora presents herself as very practical, very brave, uh, very worldly, not not cowardly. Like the, the, she has a place in the frontier. She has she's not completely helpless here in this situation. So that's what they do. The 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 scout. He's actually also called the scout. He's not called Hawkeye that much, except I think in conversations. Usually he's described by Cooper as the scout. But Hawkeye and the Indians leave. And that's how that chapter kind of boils down. And then in chapter nine, which is the last one I'll look at in this episode, this is basically covering the brief moments between the escape of Hawkeye and the Indians and the capture of the four remaining whites. Basically, they're all pretty useless in this situation. We, we saw signs that Cora has skills and bravery, but with Hayward down and David wounded, it's, you know, it's pretty obvious that they're going to be captured. And that, that Cora knew this when she sent them off, but the idea is that they're going to be able to come back and rescue them at some point in the future, kind of surprise them, surprise the Indians. Now, Hayward does get a shot off at Makwa, who reappears, and he arrived personally to effect the capture of his enemies. What we don't know at this point in the novel is, is why Makwa is after these people. Is it just scalps or is there some other deeper goal or mission he's after? Um, and we kind of end at this point with, with a bit of a cliffhanger. You know, what, how, how are they going to get out of this situation? Now, mostly this part of the novel has, is action and adventure involving this failed attempt by the party to escape the trap laid by Makwa and the Hurons. We have something that uh, Cooper likes to do a lot, which is kind of chase and escape and, you know, trying to get away from a, a trap or whatever, and then capturing people getting captured. These are things that he did all the time in, in Deerslayer. We know little, though, about why they're being targeted yet. Now, we're going to get these answers in the next few chapters. And in, this, in the second 100 pages of The Last of the Mohicans, the novel gets thematically much deeper and more grand historically, where we start to see the big historical events that are surrounding this, this close story of, with these characters. So that will do it for our first episode on Last of the Mohicans. 
a little bit less to talk about than I think in the Deer Slayer, where I think I went on for like over an hour a couple times in my episodes on the Deer Slayer. It's just the the novel's much more fast paced. It's much more action oriented, and it's there's maybe not as much kind of thematic richness in the novel, but it's still fun, and we'll, we'll still as we go on, especially in the next part, we'll have, have more to say as as we start to get a bigger, a better idea of what's going on here, both politically and with our villain. So I guess that'll do it for now. Um, thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you have any experiences with Last of the Mohicans, if you've read it, if you have thoughts about it, please leave them below um, and I'll try to get back to you. You can also write me at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And I'll definitely respond to you if you write me there. So um, that does it. So I'll be back shortly with with another 100 pages or so of Last of the Mohicans. So thank you once again for, for listening. Let Christian men take heart today. The devil's rule is done. Let no man heed the devil more, for Jesus Christ has come. But hear ye all what angels sing, how Mary made for Jesus King.